Hey guys, we are the Latter-day Disciples. Our team is dedicated to helping you boldly live the gospel, recognize the signs of the times, and prepare for the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We invite you to join us in our mission through our daily and weekly podcast series, connecting with us on social media, and visiting latterdaydisciples.com. We pray you are enlightened and empowered through this podcast episode. Thank you for joining us. I promised we would talk a little bit about the Ascension of Isaiah. There are a number of Ascension texts that I think really can broaden our perspective as you were talking about and give us uh, a different viewpoint to view our own temple worship and our own temple ceremonies, and also perhaps to better understand what that process of transformation really entails and what it looks like. The Ascension of Isaiah is one that I personally love. There's also an Ascension of Mary Magdalene that I would highly recommend, especially for those who are trying to understand the feminine path of Ascension, which I think is a lot of overlap, but not exactly the same as what the masculine side might be. Mary Magdalene is really special because, you know, we read in this, in our King James version, and it says Mary Magdalene out of whom Christ cast seven devils. Well, an alternate way of translating that is Mary Magdalene who had ascended the seven heavens. And I think that that is perhaps a well, I, th- I, I totally think it's a more true interpretation of who she was. But these, all of these different Ascension texts are really so important and such wonderful resources for us, again, to better understand what it is that we're trying to do. So can you give just a quick synopsis and and maybe a few thoughts on the Ascension of Isaiah and how it overlaps with our temple ceremonies? Yeah, maybe I could include a few other texts as well, if you don't mind. I I have all the time in the world. So um, this is your show. If you feel like we're going on too long, then, then please stop me. Yeah, no worries. Because I'll just keep going. But I want to start off first by saying that I think many people are familiar with the concept of the temple ceremonies, our modern LDS temple ceremony as being a sort of coronation ceremony. And this this is pretty plain and obvious from the initiatories and even from the beginning of the endowment in which we are promised that through our faithfulness, uh, at some future day, we'll, we will be called up as and anointed as kings and queens, priests and priestesses unto the Most High God. So that's plain as day right there in the actual ceremonies themselves. And so I think a lot of people are going to recognize that pretty clearly, and they'll see how even if we read through the Old Testament, there's a number of examples in which kings and, and other dignitaries are honored or are given their authority essentially through a washing and anointing process, being clothed with the robes of of the king and and so on. There's a number of different examples. Um, we see this a little bit in the Book of Mormon even. But I would suggest that not only is the temple ceremony replicating a coronation ceremony, but it's also replicating, as we've talked about earlier, a prophetic ascension theophany. And I want to make a connection here because I think it sometimes goes missed that the earliest kings in scripture and non-scriptural texts that have to do with the religion of the Jewish people, early Christianity, and even going far back to Adam and Eve, basically, and a number of different texts related to them, the kings of the people were always meant to also be prophets. They were prophet kings. 
When we get to the Book of Mormon, we see that Nephi, after settling in the land of Nephi, they build the temple. He is named king. He is the prophet king of their people. We learn later that Mosiah is also named king over Zarahemla, but he's also a prophet and a seer. Uh, he uses the Urim and Thummim, the, the Jaredite interpreters, to interpret the plates, uh, the gold plates of the Jaredites. He is called a prophet and a seer, and he's a king. The truest manifestation of one's kingship is in their ability to commune with the Lord and to receive revelation from him. So I want to point that out, that any time we talk about becoming a king or queen to the Most High God, we are also talking about being a prophet or prophetess, that that is part and parcel with the true meaning of a king. Uh, Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness in Hebrew. Melech and Kezedek, two Hebrew words in conjunction, mean king of righteousness. And he was a prophet to his people in Salem, to whom Abraham paid tithes, right? And from whom Abraham uh, received the priesthood and the promises of the fathers and the patriarchs, right? So a true king and queen is always meant to be a prophet and prophetess, um, as well as a priest and priestess in service of God. There are going to be some earthly distinctions in the the offices of priest versus king and, and so on. There may be some distinctions in how they are to rule within different stewardships. But ultimately, at the end of the day, when all is fulfilled and we are uh, essentially caught up back into the presence of the Father, and, and these blessings are bestowed upon us, they are ultimately going to be synonymous, for for lack of a better term. So let me let me point something out. So when we talk about the scriptures, and, and you mentioned the Ascension Isaiah, I'm also going to reference the Testament of Levi and the Apocryphon of or the Apocalypse, excuse me, of Abraham, as well as a few other texts. They are most often revelatory experiences being recorded about a particular individual, typically a prophet. In the case of the Ascension of Isaiah, this is obviously about Isaiah. In the case of the Apocalypse of Abraham, this is about Abraham, etc., etc. These prophets are being called into the presence of God. They are being anointed and sometimes washed beforehand, but they're almost always anointed by an angel or even by uh, another prophet or somebody on earth even, but they're anointed to become a prophet. They're anointed to receive not just a purification in their spirit, but they're also anointed to become a prophet. For example, I, I want to point to um, even in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah describes being caught up to the presence of the Lord and seeing the throne of God and God sitting on his throne and his train filling the, the heavenly temple, he recognizes that he is unworthy to be in God's presence. He is a man of unclean speech, as is his people. He came from this people of unclean speech, and they're wicked people. And he recognizes that, and he acknowledges that in the presence of God. and God commands the angel, or the seraphim, I believe, to uh, essentially anoint his lips, to purge him of his unclean lips, of his unclean speech, and purify him. And this is an anointing. Um, this is an anointing of a particular sense or body part, the same way that Abraham, in the uh, the book of Abraham, chapter 3, Abraham is using the Urim and Thummim 
and is using the Urim and Thummim to understand the nature of stars and planets in the galaxy and how they revolve around one another and the reckoning of time of the different planets. Um, And then the Lord reaches out and touches and anoints his eyes that he may see holier heavenly things. And from that point on, Abraham is able to see God and see many other things. And so we have this example of various body parts, almost always the eyes uh, or something uh, similar, representing one of the five senses generally, being anointed prior to this individual receiving the ability to see spiritual things. A little known account of Joseph Smith's first vision, recorded by John Alger. This is Fanny Alger's brother. He gives an account of Joseph recounting his first vision. And in his account, Joseph describes that when he prayed in the grove to ask Heavenly Father what to do and, and what church to belong to and all that, before he could see through the pillar of light and see the Father and the Son and converse with them, the Lord actually reached out through the light and anointed his eyes so that he could be spiritually purified and now see spiritual things. And it's only after his eyes were anointed by the Father that he was able to see the Father and the Son. And this is a not very well-known account, but it was given by Joseph Smith to a small group of saints, as opposed to a lot of the other uh, bigger accounts that we have, more well-known accounts that we have, in which uh, Joseph was either writing to a journalist or a paper or was publishing it in something that would be seen by both Latter-day Saints and non-Latter-day Saints alike. And so this is a very small-knit group of saints who were faithful, and I believe Joseph could have probably felt that he could divulge a little bit more information too. And so we have this short account. But it follows the same pattern in which we we see these prophets being anointed and sanctified prior to their ability to receive revelation and to see heavenly things. In the Ascension of Isaiah, we see uh, kind of towards the beginning of the second part of the Ascension. The first part of the Ascension of Isaiah deals with his um, his dealings with the people generally and King Hezekiah and his eventual martyrdom at the hands of King Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. And so the second part of the Ascension Isaiah is where we get into his prophetic theophany experience, his Ascension experience, in which he gathers together King Hezekiah and his priests and the 40 sons of the prophets and, and so on. And he lays his hands on them to anoint them that they might prophesy. And then once they are able to prophesy, now Isaiah can sit in their midst and uh, dictates to them or recounts to them his theophany experience and, and recounts his vision to them. It's only because now they've been anointed or ordained, so to speak, they've had hands laid on them by Isaiah, that now they are able to actually receive this vision from Isaiah in a manner that they will understand. And then he he gives this beautiful visionary experience in which an angel is, has caught him up to heaven and takes him through the seven heavens. And at each success of heaven, it's like the lights turn on higher and higher and it gets brighter and brighter as he goes up to each seven, each of the seven heavens. The angels that occupy these different heavens or different levels of heaven start off as being 
not much more glorious than people on earth. They're more glorious for sure, but it's only until he starts getting into the higher degrees of heaven, the fourth, fifth, sixth heaven, that he really sees the glory of the Lord upon these, these people, these angels and whatnot. And he sees that there's thrones there in the midst of these seven levels of heaven, but there's nobody to occupy them until he gets to the seventh heaven and he sees the Lord himself sitting on his throne. And he sees many thrones next to uh, the father's throne. And he sees the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees the beloved of the Lord who will descend from the seven heavens onto the, into the earth and take upon himself a mortal frame uh, and atone for the sins of the world. He sees this in vision, and then he sees the Lord come back up and, and ascend back into his place at the right hand of the Father and take his place at his throne. And then he sees all these thrones uh, lined up with the saviors next to the Father, but they're empty. And these thrones have on them a crown and a white garment. And he asks the angel, what are these these thrones with these crowns and, and, and white garments? What are they for? And he responds that these are for those who have essentially been purged of their sin through the atonement of Christ, through the atonement of the beloved, and who ascend the heavens to take their place at the throne of Christ and at the throne of the Father. And they are given these garments and crowns in association with their new calling, so to speak, their new position as kings and priests unto the Most High God to rule forever. And so we see this theme pop up in the Ascension of Isaiah quite quite literally throughout the entirety of the second part of, of the Ascension of Isaiah. The Testament of Levi is another one that I, I think is really quite beautiful. We have the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, which was likely written somewhere in the second to third century BC. So this is a Jewish non-canonical work in which the 12 sons of Israel kind of give their own patriarchal blessing of sorts, or in some cases, just a recounting of some of the things that they experienced in their mortal life that have reason to be passed down to their posterity. In the case of the Testament of Levi, we have Levi being caught up to heaven with an angel as his guide, and he receives in the highest heaven. Well, he, he gets the highest heaven. There are seven angels there waiting for him. Each have on these white pure garments and are each holding uh, some article of clothing for him. They give him a white garment. They give him robes. Uh, one gives him a center of ointment and, and one gives him a scepter. So he, he has with him, he's holding in his priestly garb now, this heavenly garb that he's been given, this vestments. He's holding a scepter in one hand and an, an orb of ointment or I or, um, can't remember the term used. But he's holding these things in hand and he's told, Levi, become a priest forever to the Lord and you and your posterity. Earlier in the vision, he's given a sword and a shield and told to go back down to earth and defend his family and the faith. Interestingly enough, in association with him receiving a clean garment and the robes of a priest and his scepter and, and whatnot, he's also commanded to go take a wife. 
and to raise up seed. And he's even told that with his sons, he's supposed to ordain them to different offices. So we see implicit in the Testament of Levi, the idea of the eternal nature of families, and that in order for him to fulfill his duty as a priest forever to the Lord, he has to be married and he has to have posterity. He has to raise up seed to the Lord. And they have to also be given the responsibility of the priesthood in different offices. So one of the things that I love so much about that text is this idea that he cannot fulfill his priesthood duties. He cannot exercise the power of God on the earth in his priesthood without a wife and children. Can't be done. He, he, he needs the, the whole family package in order to fully exercise the power of God in his, in his calling. So we see in a number of texts, this idea of a prophet being called up to the different levels of heaven. Sometimes that's seven, sometimes it's three, sometimes it's 10. Um, in any case, they're caught up until they're basically confronted with the Lord himself in the highest and holiest heaven. They see the Lord on his throne. They receive some charge or commandment from him. Uh, and they're almost always anointed before they can ascend the heavens. They have to be anointed so that they can can see, so that they can smell, so that they can hear, so that they can perceive the word of the Lord and see um, as a prophet and see spiritual things and heavenly things. And so when we look at our own temple experience, um, sometimes we like to compartmentalize, like these are the initiatories with the washing and anointing. Here's the endowment. And then over there, that's the ceiling room. And that's where ceilings happen. If we look at it through the lens of these ancient Jewish and Christian texts, there is no distinction. This is a succession of events uh, with no real break. It's not like you do one thing at one time and then another thing at another time, and it, they, they don't really have that much to do with each other. It is all one package deal. The washings and anointings that take place anciently in these texts and in the scriptures were meant to prepare one to receive the garment of purity or the garment of righteousness, which then pre prepares them to receive the robes of righteousness and the robes of the priesthood. In connection with that, this prepares one to receive either as a priest or a king, a new name uh, in association with their office of authority. Kings always received a new name in their coronation ceremony. They had to be washed and anointed they're given robes and garments and, and things associated with their authority as, as monarch. But they're given a name. And in fact, when we look at the Book of Mormon, even, we see that uh, the lineage of Nephi, the kings that succeeded Nephi, were also given the name of Nephi. That was their new name. Uh, regardless of whatever name they had, they were given the name of Nephi as they ascended the throne. So we see this pattern all throughout scriptures. Um, and just as a, a side note, I. I'm disheartened when I see people online and elsewhere say that the Book of Mormon doesn't teach anything about the, the temple. There are a number of groups uh, and individuals who would make that claim that the Book of Mormon doesn't teach anything to do with our modern temple ceremonies. I would argue that they do, and we see it kind of all over the place if we look for it. But I feel disheartened when I, I see people disregard the light and truth that has been revealed because they simply don't see it. I guess that requires time. It requires uh, humility and the willingness to see. 
but in any case, a side note, and feel free to edit that out if you want to. <laughs> I I won't do that because I've said the same thing <laughs> on podcast episodes before. Yeah, but in any case, uh, when we look at a number of these texts, and and I want to say something about the the garment and the clothing as well. Almost always in these texts, after someone is ritually washed and anointed, either physically in a ceremony on earth performed by a priest or whatnot, or in these ascension theophany experiences like a vision, almost always they're given a pure white garment to wear. They're basically naked as they come out of uh, the midrash or, 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 excuse me, the uh, mikvah, and they need to be clothed. And so there's this idea in a number of these scriptures and non-scriptural texts in which not even talking about the New Testament, but just even going through the Old Testament and various old texts where when one is ritually washed and purified and anointed, they are to remove their old clothing, which is a representation of their old life and their sin. They remove it. They are ritually washed and purified where they can be anointed. Typically, uh, anciently, like in the first temple period Judaism, they would be completely immersed in the oil. They would they wouldn't just you know anoint the top of their head. They would anoint their hands, their feet, and in some cases they would be completely uh, immersed in it. After which, uh, they would be clothed in a brand new garment that was white and represented purity and righteousness. In a few early Christian and late Jewish texts, such as like the Pearl for example, is a, is a first century or second century early uh, Christian text, as well as uh, the Odes of Solomon, which is a late second temple period Judaism text. The garment that is given is very distinct from the robes that are given afterwards. And that is because the garment itself that is first placed uh, on the individual after they are washed and purified represents something different than the robes do. The garment itself that's given to these people represents in there's multiple layers. In one sense, it represents their new resurrected body. Uh, It's symbolic of the resurrection. And so putting off our old clothing, being washed is like basically we're dying as to our old life and being resurrected. And the garment that we put on is white and pure represents our resurrected body. Christianity, we obviously recognize that as being rep- representation of Christ and his resurrection. We are baptized into Christ, um, and those who are baptized into Christ put on Christ, as it says in Galatians 3, and those who are Christ become seed, the seed of Abraham. And so we see this concept of the garment itself representing a couple different levels, a newness of life uh, with purity and righteousness now as a, a follower of the Lord. It also represents the Lord's resurrected body and the promise of resurrection because he was resurrected. It also represents our own personal resurrection uh, individually. But when we look at the Pearl or the Odes of Solomon, just to give a couple examples of some early Jewish texts and early Christian texts, there's another layer to this that I think is really beautiful. And that is um, an acknowledgement that when we were in the council of heaven in our pre-earth state, our pre-mortal existence. And and these texts fully teach that we indeed lived in the council of heaven with our father before we came to this earth. The garment that uh, represents in these texts, the 
light and knowledge and glory that we had when we lived in our pre-mortal state with our Father in heaven before we descended to earth. And so when we put off our old garment, are ritually washed and purified, and put on the new clean garment, we are symbolically receiving the greater light and knowledge and glory that we once had in the council of our Father before we came to earth. After that, we can now be prepared to receive the robes of the priesthood to serve. It's very different. So the 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 glory and knowledge that we once had in our pre-earth state, our pre-mortal existence, isn't necessarily inherently the same thing as our priesthood authority. It's not inherently the same thing as the priesthood of God. That's representative by the robes of the priesthood in these texts. And so what's interesting, I believe it's the pearl lays this out where there are those in the pre-earth life who not only have a garment, because we all have a garment, and we all have a garment that is varying degrees of light and, and luster, depending upon how much glory and, and knowledge and stuff that we had in our pre-earth state. There are also those in the Council of Heaven who have different robes associated with the priesthood and with their office. And so when they come to earth, not only do we shed our garment and give it to the angels to hold on for us until such time that we are brought back into his presence and can retrieve it. They also have to take off their robes of priesthood authority as well. And until such time that they are uh, again received on earth. And sometimes people don't always live up to those promises during mortality. And so they'll have to wait until after mortality to retrieve those garments and robes. So there's, there's, this beautiful concept there of a differentiation between the the garment of the holy priesthood or the robes of the holy priesthood and the the garment, uh, which was referred to as the garment of light, given to those in the pre-earth state, pre-mortal existence, that we retrieve when we are brought back into the presence of God, whether that's in this life or the next. And I could keep talking about that. There's a couple other texts that um, talk all about uh, garments and robes and and whatnot. But I, I want to point out that uh, in the Testament of Levi, when Levi is given not only a garment, he's then given robes and a scepter and, and these different articles of clothing that each have a specific purpose. Uh, if we look at the, the priestly garb in Exodus or Deuteronomy, as it's laid out, each piece of clothing has a different purpose. Ultimately, the different robes, uh, the girdle, the ephod, all these things represent a station of kingly service to his people. In fact, the ephod and uh, the, the breastplate given to Aaron and his his seed are what hold the Urim and Thummim, which are for the purpose of seeing and prophesying. The lights and uh, what's it called? The, the Urim and Thummim is basically uh, lights and oracles uh, or something to that effect. Yeah, lights yeah. and perfections. Yes, lights and perfections. And so this is how revelation is to be received by those in priestly service until such time that they are truly anointed to see things without the, the need of the earthly tool. Mm. When we look at our modern temple ceremony and we go through the initiatories, we were given 
certain blessings or were promised certain blessings in association with these anointings. And I think a lot of these older texts point out that this is for the purpose of making us, uh, putting us in a position to receive uh, revelation from God, to become prophets in our own stewardship. And ultimately, I think that's what the in the temple ceremonies is pointing us towards. It's our own. We are each replicating our own uh, throne theophany or prophetic theophany experience. We are ascending uh, from this celestial state into the presence of our Father in heaven, and we are given greater light and truth along the way to enable us to ascend into greater heights. Mm. And we're going to need that. We're going to need that in order to continue here on on this celestial earth. Um, we're going to need all of the help that we can get on our on our journey back. Um, and so our father in heaven, through the restoration of the gospel, through Joseph Smith and others, has provided a means for us in our temple experience to replicate this experience, to provide us a means by uh, receiving the light and truth and teachings, ordinances, covenants, etc., necessary to unlock the door to the revelation that we need to converse with the Lord through the veil and to have that veil parted on our behalf so that at some point, uh, sooner or later, we can be brought back into his presence. Mm. So good. Thank you. Thank you so much for teaching us and and for sharing a lot of those insights. I know that you could go on and on and and we all could. I'm sure if we, um, you know, studying these different texts and really diving in to see the parallels and to see how those are reflected in our temple service today, it's really, really profound. And I hope that everyone has heard perhaps some ways specifically that the spirit would encourage you to deepen your understanding of these things and to broaden that perspective and, and really inform what you're doing in the temple and why you're doing it. And then even more importantly, what you need to do when you leave the temple and how to become a living temple yourself by making this prophetic theophany ascension that we've been talking about. Jacob, I so appreciate you and and your time, your study. I, I feel a kinship with you. I think that the Lord has taken us on really similar paths. And um, I would encourage everyone again to, to check out your podcast. Um, I'm sure, I believe you've talked about some of these things on that platform as well, correct? Oh yeah. And it's, it keeps coming. Yes. So I'm going to be talking about it for a long time, I think. It's interesting how the temple does become so central when, when you really start diving into these things. Um, one last thought that I'd like to share. I learned just today, you know, going back to the beginning of Isaiah's call as a prophet and, and his ascension experience when he says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I can't be in the presence of the Lord. Uh, I learned today that another translation of that phrase, unclean lips, is false teachings. The idea being that really for us to begin this whole process of ascent, we have to align ourselves with truth. And that includes rooting out a lot of the things that we believe that are not true. Uh, and there's plenty of them. There's plenty of them, even in, even, and maybe even especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are tares that have been sown 
by the adversary to sow confusion and to make this ascension process um, not as intuitive and not as attainable as the Lord would, you know, as we would have it be, I would say. So as you're listening to this, as you've listened to this podcast and as you go on to study some of these deeper things, um, I would really encourage you to lean into that and allow the Lord to be your educator in this ascension process and begin with letting go being willing to let go of the things that you think are true and that might not be completely what needs to be for you to begin to make that journey. So that's just a final thought. Yeah. Might I, might I suggest something real quick, a, a framework to look at this. The Lord requires all things from us. Um, he requires a heart and a willing mind. He requires a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Um, all that we have, That's that's what it means to consecrate our lives to him. As I've studied the temple more and more in recent years, I've learned that there has never been a commandment from God to build an altar without also having provided a veil. Um, And sometimes that is literal and, and sometimes that's figurative or metaphorical. But in any case, it's always real. Um, And any time we feel like we need to get closer to the Lord. Anytime we feel that we are slipping away from him, anytime we feel like we want to know him more, we want more of him. Um, we need to go to him and ask him, call on the name of the Lord through the veil and ask him what it is he requires of us and whatever it is, put it on the altar and burn it. And only then when we sacrifice whatever it is he asks of us, will that veil be parted for us. That is uh, ultimately, I think, why the Lord places a veil in front of an altar to teach us that sacrifice and consecration is the only true, truly the only way uh, for that veil to be parted and for us to uh, be brought back into his presence. Mm, That's beautiful. Thank you so much for, for illustrating that. It's so true. Um, and so, yeah, we would just encourage you as you're contemplating these things and trying to integrate them with your current understandings, the Lord might ask you to put some of the things you think, you know, on the altar. And if he does, that's a, that's an amazing sign that there's a vow that is to be parted for you. So we encourage you to make that journey. But again, Jacob, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Are you just reading the scriptures or have you learned to search them? If you haven't switched to using scripture notes, you haven't discovered the power of a tool designed for searching the scriptures. This incredible tool allows you to pull together search results from the standard works, apocryphal texts, and freedom documents into a collection you can study from. Digging deeper with instant references to Blue Letter Bible, the LDS Citation Index, Webster's 1828 Dictionary, and more. You can even import your gospel library notes as well. Sign up now for a free trial at scripturenotes.com.